as I mentioned beforehand, this is, if you have the outline, you already know it's a very long one. Uh, we're not going to get through all of it here this afternoon. Uh, and the reason it's so long is because we've got a short event followed by a long event, followed by some exposition that we have to give on these things. So we'll certainly get through the first event again. Uh, last Sunday afternoon was the first time that we've had a lesson in over a year where there's multiple synoptic accounts and these two events <clears throat> are going to follow suit. So if you'd like to turn to all of these, you can. If you just want to pick your favorite, you can. Uh, it makes no difference to me. But the title of this first event is Christ and Little Children. And the three accounts are Matthew 19 verses 13 through 15, Mark 10 verses 13 through 16, and Luke 18, verses 15 through 17. Uh, I think my family knows Luke's usually the account that I prefer. Uh, and it's chronologically right where we have been for the past year. It's just the next section followed by the next section. Uh, this time around, I did underline the differences we, we find between those translations. So if you're looking at the outline, you do have a little bit of a benefit. I'll try to point those out as we go. We'll start with Matthew's account, Matthew 19, verse 13. Then were there brought unto him little children him, of course, being Jesus, that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Suffer, little children, and forbid them not to come unto me. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed thence. What's missing from Matthew's account is who the disciples rebuked. They didn't rebuke the little children, and we're going to see that in these other two accounts. Uh, Mark chapter 10 Verse 13 through 16, we read, And they brought young children to him. Again, we have the pronoun they. Not a whole lot of explanation as to who they are. So we will keep going. They brought these young children to him that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. So you can imagine that's what's underlined. But when Jesus saw it, saw that rebuking, he was much displeased. And said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not. For of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms and put his hands upon them and blessed them. Quite a bit here that wasn't in Matthew's account. Uh, the people that brought them, their young children. We don't know how old yet, but the next account will give us that. Uh, so they had to be brought by someone here. It says that uh, the group that brought them were rebuked. And here we also see that Jesus didn't rebuke the children, but he rebuked those who were rebuking the people who brought the children. We also see here the explanation that uh, there's something these little children have in which we are all to have or be in possession of or to be reflective of if we are to receive the kingdom of God. The final account, Luke 18, verses 15, 16, and 17 and they brought unto him also infants. Now you see the importance of the synoptic accounts being paralleled. We can get a lot out of all three of these together. They brought unto him also infants, that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer, little children, come, to me, uh, come unto me. And forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever should not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. Got a better idea now how old they are, but we also see that Jesus called his disciples unto him. He didn't openly rebuke them in front of all to see. Uh, and we've talked a lot about that. It's a little bit of a of pastoral bullying. Uh, Jesus doesn't model that. He calls the disciples unto himself and makes these things clear. So... 
Marriage, which we discussed last time with the subject of divorce, is the proper way in which would lead to children. I, I have written in the outline, marriage leads to children, but that unfortunately isn't always the case. And we're following the chronological steps of setting up a family. We discussed marriage in the last lesson. Now we discuss children, which are supposed to come from marriage. And children are supposed to be brought to the Lord. That's what's modeled here. It was customary for rabbis to bless children, and parents brought their little ones to Jesus for his blessing. And the pronoun those in Mark 10, 13 is masculine. So this means the fathers were there. This, just was, this wasn't just mothers bringing their infants in. This is a masculine term referencing either mothers and fathers or fathers alone. Something I want to make sure we understand here is that this was not a matter of baptism. This wasn't some christening service, which I know some of our supposed sister churches are doing now. That's not what's taking place here. And it's also not set up in such a way that we are to repeat it like we do in the observance of the Lord's Supper. This is the Son of God in the flesh. This is a very special event in time that's only ever happened one time. So we can't look at this and say, oh, when Junior has a baby, we better bring him in for Brother Joe to do something with. What's Brother Joe going to do? Brother Joe doesn't baptize babies. Brother Joe doesn't christen babies. Brother Joe can't even dedicate babies. So what's modeled here is not something that the Lord's church is called to repeat. He literally teaches them that this is how they are to be brought unto the kingdom, not before the church or to a mourner's bench or to an altar. It's very different. Jesus didn't even do baptisms. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, we read, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, and the disciples would not have hindered candidates for baptism. We don't read anywhere else in the text that the, the, the disciples were known for running around and rebuking people who were coming forth for baptism. So this is not what these children are being brought for. The parents were asking for his special blessing on their little ones, and he was pleased to grant their request. Special blessings only Christ Jesus had. This was the Messiah. They were coming by faith that the Messiah might bless their children. It was not something rolled forward for under-shepherds to do on and on and on and on and on. Unspoiled children are the ideal models for all who belong to Jesus. They're humble, receptive, they're dependent. All of these things we discussed this morning of the altogether Christian. And they are filled with potential. And that's really all the notes that we have for this section. Some of these things are going to come up a little bit later. Uh, I don't want to double dip. So this is what we have for this event. The next event is the rich young ruler and a teaching on riches. And we got a lot to read with this one, so bear with me. Uh, hopefully we'll get to something of substance beyond just the reading, but if not, uh, there's certainly a blessing in reading the Lord's Word. So we'll start with Matthew's account. Picks up right where we left off, Matthew 19, verse 16. And it's going to go all the way into Matthew 20, verse 16. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? It's not direly important. But all three of these writers attest that this event happened immediately after this last one we just talked about, the little children. So just keep that in your mind. This is, there, there's no verse here that says, and it came to pass. There's no verse here that says, uh, and after such and such events or such and such days. 
Uh, doesn't We don't have a, an interlude where the Lord goes to Mount of Olives to pray and comes back. There's very likely this happened immediately after the little children event. And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. It sounds familiar. This is not the same event that we've already taught in our afternoon study. This is the second time this has happened. I'll give you those verses later. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, which, Jesus said, thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, all these things have I kept from my youth, uh, from my youth up. What lack I yet? This should be, <laughs> this should trigger something in our minds. The first time this type of conversation happened, he didn't ask what lack I yet. So this is the first time we've heard that question. And Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, and this word perfect is defined by Strong's as wanting nothing necessary for completeness. So he's not saying if you're going to be like Christ. He's saying if you're going to want for nothing else necessary for completeness, go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. A couple things I want to point out before we keep going. This advice, this counsel of the Lord Jesus Christ is to a certain rich young ruler. We're going to explain how you get that title too. But it's not counsel for everyone. He's not saying everyone who hears this teaching will be complete if they go sell everything. Okay, Now that might be the instruction for more than one person. But in this instance, just like with the babies, it's specific. Those babies coming to Jesus for a blessing... That's not a model for repetition. This situation, this conversation with the rich young ruler is not the advice Jesus gives every rich man, but he knows how hard it is for a rich man to come to the kingdom of heaven. He knows what he's asking for each of us, poor and rich alike, to give up to follow after him. Consider the cost. Consider the five chapters in Luke that we've gone through that talks about discipleship. But with, when the young man... This is where we get the young part of this title. I know it sounds crazy, but all three synoptic gospels contribute toward rich, young ruler. That's how we get this name. I think Luke's the one that gives us the ruler. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. We must then want for something necessary for us to be complete. We go on in the text, Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me, in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold. This simply means a hundred times as much as what has been forsaken and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that, that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, 
which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. Again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? They say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard. And whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. So when the evening was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came, they were uh, they that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more. And they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is, and go thy way. I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first last, for many be called, but few chosen. It's important that though we are called to worship the same God in the same manner of spirit and truth, some are called apostles, some are called preachers, some are called teachers. Each of us has a different portion or a different part to play in the work of God. And each of us has a different time in which we're being called to serve. Isaac's time could be very different than mine. Uh, who knows if the Lord tarries what this world's going to look like in 10, 15 years. Mark's account, Mark 10, also starts right after the little children event. Mark 10, verses 17 through 31. And when he was gone forth <clears throat> into the way, there came out running. Came, there came one running. And kneeled to him, and this is different. I'll point the things out that are different for those who don't have the outline. The kneeling part was not in Matthew's account. And he asked Jesus, Good master, what shall I do that I might that I may inherit in eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy mother, thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. That's not in Matthew's account. And said unto him, this also not in Matthew's account, one thing thou lackest. So in Matthew's account, the question's asked, what yet do I lack? Here it's stated, one thing thou lackest. Um, and I got in here, note before going further, that Jesus beheld him and said one thing thou lackest. And again, this is further evidence that this is specific counsel between the Lord Jesus Christ and one certain uh, young rich ruler in which he loves. He's confessing his love here, but this instruction is specific for this kneeling rich man. He says, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. And we know what that means because of our study through Luke that come and follow me part, uh, the, the take up your cross and come and follow me, that's discipleship. 
Go do this and be my disciple. And what did you go back even further? What did Jesus say of one who couldn't do this? They're not fit to be my disciple. So this is the Lord's instruction. If we throw it into a mathematical formula, we understand what he's asking this man to do. The same thing he asked Matthew, come and follow me. The same thing he asked the four fishermen, come and follow me. And he was sad at the same and went away grieved for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answereth again and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches? This part wasn't in Matthew's account either. This man trusted in his riches. To what extent, what for, what purpose was he hoping to get out of his riches? It's not explained here. I, I don't want to chase it down and say for religious purposes or that he was purchasing the kingdom or that uh, he didn't have faith and, and that's why he trusted in riches. But we only know one thing. He trusted too much in his riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished, out of measure, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? That's something else not in Matthew's account. They didn't volunteer that out loud to Jesus. He heard them say it. And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospel's. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. And the last of the three accounts, and it's already 18 minutes in, so you see we're not going to get through the whole thing. Luke 18, starting in verse 18, right where we left off. This is where we get the certain ruler part of the rich young ruler title. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good, save one. That is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, All these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing. I don't precisely know what to do with it, but Matthew makes it out that this rich young ruler says, what do I lack? And in the other two accounts, Jesus infers it, he interprets it, or he sees that there is a need of something that is lacking. And he tells him, sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And there's that direct phrase that we alluded to in Mark's account. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly, or with what difficulty, shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The, thing which, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in the present time and in the world to come 
life everlasting. <clears throat> so again, we can't separate the Lord's teachings from themselves. So what we learn from the poor widow woman that grieved the unrighteous judge was that she didn't have enough money to sway his opinion. The others probably did. We, said, we stated when we talked through that lesson that uh, it was likely common practice that money talked. Imagine that. It hasn't changed. But she didn't have the money for which to get the judge attention. So she drove him crazy, essentially, and kept pestering and pestering and pestering over the concerns and issues that she had until she got the judge's ear. So we he see here, again, the expectation of the Jews is if the rich that have been faithful since their youth or from their youth up aren't saved. Like if all of them, I'm trying to find the right way to say it, if all of them aren't just saved because they've been faithful to the law and they're rich, I mean, they have been taught from their youth up that money does speak. Why were the four fishermen fishermen? They had to pay taxes to have their homes. They had to pay Rome or they would be imprisoned. Why was Matthew a tax collector? Taxes needed to be collected. Duh. Yeah, that's exactly why. So we see all of these things of their heritage, of their time frame that maybe we can't understand because we haven't lived through it. But that speaks to this situation. They weren't necessarily anticipating that any rich man would be saved. But this is the second rich man, at least two that are recorded in Scripture, in which he seemed to have been faithful in following the law and following religion, following the synagogue. And he's rich. And that's not enough to get the attention of the righteous ruler. So when you combine these records, we learn that this man was rich, young, and a ruler, probably of the synagogue. He was the second to ask Jesus what to do with internal, uh, what to do to inherit eternal life in such a way. The first was back in Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. I would encourage you to go ahead and read that on your own time. But generally speaking, when a writer gives us Two accounts that sound the same, but it is the same writer. They're different accounts. And everything agrees here, chronologically, that these are different events in the Lord's time. This account typically being referred to as the rich young ruler because all three of the synoptic gospels reveal him to be rich, young, and a ruler of some sort. It was unusual for a young man to have that position. So he must have been a most exemplary youth, very intelligent, and very on task with achieving what needed to be achieved to get to where he's at. However, he, like most even today, wanted salvation on his terms, whatever they were, but not the Lord's. If only it were that easy, if salvation required the sacrifice of Calvary for the Lord himself, how could we truly expect that following him would allow for us to keep all of the world too? We don't have any scriptures to support that. If Calvary... If salvation itself for the elect of God was only made possible by the Lord Jesus Christ dying on the cross, suffering, and rose again, how could we honestly expect that we are going to take everything we have in our wallets, in our homes, in our hearts, with us everywhere we go for all time, that following Jesus would not cause us to lose anything? It's preposterous because the amount of times alone that Jesus says we must bear our cross, sacrifice, die unto our own lives, and follow after Him. How could we possibly perceive that to mean you keep everything and follow me, Joel Osteen? It's not in Scripture. Anywhere. Everything we read in Scripture.
Scripture says you will have to sacrifice some things because a lot of those things were of the flesh. And the flesh loved those things. Or it's tied deeply to darkness and you can't have it and be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ in the light. That's hard. And make no mistake, the Lord's not caught off guard by this conversation, but He feels the weight of it. In Mark's account, he beheld and loved this man and still had to tell him the absolute truth. He still had to reveal that there's still necrotizing fasciitis. There's still black mold here. It's got to be cut, cleaned, removed, and then we've got to test again. It's not an easy process, but it's not an uneasy process for Jesus because uh, he didn't see it coming. It's an uneasy process, I think, if it's uneasy at all, because we so love the darkness and reject the light. The love that we should have for Christ is, I don't care. All this darkness has got to go away. I've got to serve after Him. Well, who's living like that? What lies at the center of God's will is not a man that will try desperately to have both, but a man that only desires one. And I don't know that any of us in the room fit that. I pray we're going that way. I pray we'll get there one day, but I'm not there. I'm not there. When he talks about discipleship, we can't just check the box and say, that's me, because I'm a Baptist. And I'm not just a Baptist. I'm a landmark, sovereign grace, independent, blah, 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 all the right words, Baptist. No, that doesn't make you a disciple. There's nowhere in this Bible where it says you have to know all the right words and answer all the questions right to be my disciple. Instead, it says you have to die unto yourself and bear your cross and follow me. And we can't separate the two. We've got to be very, very careful before we move past this section on discipleship that we actually understand what he's calling for. He's not calling for us to follow in our arrogance, follow in our roughneckness, follow with all of our wealth, follow with all of our attitude, to scorn after everybody we disagree with. He's saying, die unto that madness and follow after me. He's made a path clear for Paul. And everything we saw of Paul this morning, Paul says, this is what the Lord had for me. This is what the Lord had ordained for me. Amen. What he told the Ephesians there, when, he, uh, when they walked with him a spell as he was leaving them, and he said for three, three and a half years, he preached every jot, every tittle. What else did he say? I am bound in the Spirit. I cannot escape what the Lord has called for me to do, and I don't want to. I am bound and, and, and if you look at the words there, he says, I am attached to this thing. I am drugged by this thing. I am captive by this thing. What's Malachi say? The burden of the Lord. Malachi doesn't say, take it from me. He says, I must do this thing. I must write these words. I must confess these truths. I must walk differently. The dream that Isaiah has, the vision that Isaiah goes through, who will go from me? Everything we read in Isaiah 6, it's a very different walk Isaiah is about to engage in. Everything from Samuel's youth up. Everything from David's youth up. Everything from, uh, even with Jacob, we see a ton of changes throughout Jacob's life because Jacob wasn't permitted to be the usurper too. He's immediately identifying those two different personalities of Jacob. There's Jacob and there's Israel. And as you've seen, there's a Jacob and Israel all the way to the end of Genesis. All the way to his death. His days were few, but they were difficult. 
Nobody is saved either by keeping the law or by becoming poor and generous. Jesus isn't saying here, get rid of it all because I only save the poor. I only save the desperate. But he does talk in Matthew 5 about hungering and thirsting after righteousness. He does talk in Matthew 5 about blessed are they which are persecuted for my namesake. He does talk in Matthew 5 a lot about those that are so, uh, so faithful unto him, requiring his atonement. All the things we talked about this morning, also at the end of that, on the other side of the equal sign, being as cities set upon a hill that cannot be hid. Light shining forth in dark places. You know why a, a blended light can't do that? Because it also has darkness. There's going to be corners that a light shaded by the world won't reach because that light is not as bright as it should be. It's not as singular as it's required to be. Galatians 2 verse 21, Paul says, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. The very next chapter, Galatians 3 verse 21 through 24 is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been given, or should have been rather, by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Before I read the next verse that I want to read, think about what we've already seen of the certain rich young ruler. He kept the law from his youth up. We understand it actually is impossible to keep the law, but I, I believe what he's saying there is I've, stri I've striven, strive, strove. She's not here to shake her head at me, so you understand what I mean. Since his youth to keep that law. He's attempted to honor it the best that he could. So what was, the, what was the requirement of the law? What was the law? It was a schoolmaster, from what Paul says in Galatians. And what was the schoolmaster supposed to do? Bring us unto Christ. Who's the rich young ruler talking to? Christ Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The law has brought me here, Jesus. What must I do to have that free gift of grace that you have to offer? I know the answers in what I just said. But Jesus tells him, get rid of anything else that you're dependent on. I have to be it. Get rid of everything else that has visited my throne because I have to sit on it. You can't listen to all the other voices. You can only hear me. You can't go where everybody else says to go. You have to go where I send you. You can't please anyone else. And beloved, listen to me. You can be on your own throne. You cannot please yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ. Your pleasure should be His pleasure. His pleasure should be your pleasure. If the law, if keeping the law from His youth up has brought Him to Jesus, and this is the second man since Luke 10 to, to be brought here, which just confirms that the law is a schoolmaster doing exactly what the law is supposed to do, not give everlasting life, but bring us to Jesus, Twice now we see, you're here, great, get rid of everything else and come and follow me. It's not an expectation that he picks and chooses who he gives it to. We know this because for four chapters in Luke, it was the same for everyone. And all the way back at the 
the beginning of Luke when he called their fishermen and he called Matthew. He said, come and follow me. And Matthew left the tax collector's booth, left that way of life, which would have been an elevated position compared to every other Jew, and he went with fishermen. <gasps> he lived the rest of his ministry, of Christ's ministry, well below the means by which he knew up until that point. You know what? Those fishermen, they weren't called to fish anymore. They were called to fish for men, but not for fish. Come and follow me. Nothing else can sit on that heart but me. And it's, go back to the early parts of the study through these recordings and you'll hear that they weren't necessarily saved when they were first called. They are growing throughout this entire ministry. They are learning what it is to follow. We see Simon Peter go back and fish, beloved. That's me. Called to live a different life and yet I do that which I want not. Just like Paul. Romans 3.20, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, not rich, not poor. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The Lord referenced the history of this man tending to the law for the benefit of his disciples, then and now. It was true that outwardly the young man had obeyed the laws Jesus named in our text. He, he named exactly what he knew this man was faithful to. This time, he didn't have for the man to list it. But Luke 10, he did have the man for list it. And there's a reason. Because he didn't include, thou shalt not covet. Go back and look at all three accounts. It's never listed. He asked him what he should do. And Jesus lists all the laws that this young man had done. But Exodus 20, verse 17 is very clear. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not have anything on that heart, on that throne, but me. That's what he's bringing out for this man. This isn't a minor law. Remember what Paul said in Colossians 3, 5, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul says again in Romans 7, verse 7 and 8, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is the fact that the law brought these two rich men before the Lord Jesus and they were unwilling to give up this one thing, is the law evil? God forbid. Did the law cause for them to sin? Absolutely not. God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. If we covet, we may end up breaking all of the other commandments to protect that one. Our Lord's words about riches shocked the twelve. Many of the Jews thought that riches were evidence of God's favor. That's not changed a whole lot. 2024, it's still what some consider to be the sign of God's favor. It's not possessing riches that condemns the soul, but trusting in riches. And Jesus makes that plain. Abraham was a very wealthy man, but he was saved by faith in God's word, not faith in his money. Genesis 15, 6. A desire to acquire the trust, a desire to acquire and trust riches can hinder the growth of the word of God in the heart. Matthew 13, verse 22. It says there, He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word. And the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choked the word, and he becometh unfruitful. 
It causes us to forget. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 13 through 18. Where it says, And when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, thine heart be lifted up, or puffed up, or proud, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, Who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint? Who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end? Now say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth, but thou shalt remember the Lord thy God. For it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers, as it is this day. That's a hard text. That is a hard text. The hardness of our heart causes us to forget God, and it leads to many kinds of temptations. Paul, and we'll close here, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9-10, through But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through many sorrows. There's many other examples certainly that we can give but I like to think of the ones we're most familiar with with our study in Genesis. Lot chose the land that he chose because it was fair. Business would be good there. He could be prosperous there. And it's believed that Lot stayed there, even with the wickedness that was all around him, because he was wealthy there. He could do well there. He could be successful there. I've talked to some of you before about this, but there used to be a time in America when men would move their families and relocate their families to follow after the Lord's church, to be where worship was. We live in a society now where We move to follow work. We move to follow those comforts by which we earn a check. But remember what we just read in Deuteronomy. Remember the one who gave us the power and the ability to earn such wealth. It ought not be so. Are churches shrinking? Yes. Are churches without pastors struggling? Yes. Are all of them called to move? I can't speak to that. But they should be willing to. In the day of his power, they will be made willing to. We are to follow God first and foremost. What keeps us from doing so? Get rid of it. It should not be there. It is required to vacate the throne of God because it is His. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Why are we called to be holy? Because this is His throne. Because the Holy Spirit dwells here like a temple. We are called to be holy because this is a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. It's not because the pastor said so. It's not because daddy said so. We should be saying so because it's the commandment of the Lord. But you should fear him. Fear him who is able to make thee prosper and to make thee suffer. But beyond that, also able after death to condemn thee to hell. Be fearful of this one whose judgment is just around the bend. He, He will not tolerate what's happened on the other side of Tulsa. Can you imagine... 
if the if the throne judgment were shaped in such a way in which there was a line and we got to experience or hear what took place with the one in front of us could you imagine being behind that guy God is long suffering who knows who knows how patient he might be could you imagine being Sam Wilson and all that he has done to one of the Lord's true churches could you imagine being a church that has established its own methods and practices for disciplinary action without room for even hearing an appeal? Well, we can imagine these things, but could you imagine them standing before the throne? That should be what navigates our decision-making. Oh, well, I'd love to have that thing, and I could just take that thing. It's right there. But I have to stand before God one day to give an account of even this moment over this trivial little thing. I'm talking about Achan. The thing he took, he had to bury it so nobody could find it. They were told not to take any of those spoils. He had to bury it, couldn't even enjoy it. Had to hide it, that little thing. And his entire family stoned to death because they had to be faithful unto God. Joshua taught that there was no other way. Joshua and Caleb knew there could be no other way. They had to be faithful unto God first and foremost. May the Lord help us to see these truths, to be patient with one another, to be patient with ourselves. This is a big book, not 5,000 pages big. It's a big book because it requires reading and rereading and rereading. It requires trusting in this book and that God more than any man who will ever offer an interpretation of it, including myself. Be patient with yourself, but don't walk away from this work. Keep reading and growing in the Word of God. Keep suffering through. It's going to be worth it on the other side.